The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Renovating the Clinical Rulebook for HCC, Multidirectional Management with Innovative Immunotherapy and Targeted Platforms. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UUY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everybody, and uh, good to see you all. It seems you're having a good time, <laughs> so that's good. And uh, welcome, everybody, for innovating the clinical blue book for HCC, the multidisciplinary management for innovative immunotherapy and target platform. So very important, what are our goals today? And this is what we're going to achieve together. So we're going to boost the understanding of the latest evidence for modern immunotherapy, target <coughs> therapy, and combination regimens in HCC, enhance the treatment toolbox with skills to create an effective and personalized treatment plan, and equip with the team-based strategies to confidently monitor and manage patients onto modern HCC regimen. And uh, a big thanks uh, is to Blue Fairy, supporter of the program, and uh, this is an excellent resource for professionals, patients, and caregivers. Uh, we're really grateful and uh, Blue Fairy strongly recommend for you if you are not familiar with them to really uh, click on that QR code or at the same time uh, peer view and the team has the accessibility to really provide you what will be an incredible resource for your patients in regard to really guidance in regard to the care and the story of uh, uh, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association has really been uh, uh, exemplary in regard to what uh, uh, patient advocacy is truly about. So please uh, definitely use the resource. And again, thank you one more time for Blue Fairy for that. So why HCC? As you can see, we don't really have to prove it beyond. Uh, if anything, the mortality in the HCC in the United States is increasing. Uh, as you can see over here in the orange uh, top uh, dots, we can see that uh, liver and hepatic uh, biliary cancer or bile ducts cancer are really on the rise. And uh, this is definitely a concerning event that we should really focus on uh, as we continue to have more of the adverse events uh, that really can cause HCC. Uh, beside that, uh, as you can see, the mapping for the treatment of HCC has evolved quite a bit. And uh, if anything, this is a more novel look at the BCLC uh, staging system. Big credit for our dear colleague, Dr. Maria Rieg uh, from the BCLC in Barcelona, that uh, really Dr. Rieg was able to kind of like dissect it further because as we know, the BCLC does very well to the extreme left, as we can see in early stage disease, small cut it out, small bad liver transplant, intermediate stage, maybe look into uh, local therapies, but as you can see, this kind of like triforks that look in the intermediate stage B, this is where we're now looking into either consideration for systemic therapy or combination of or even reversal of the therapies where we start with systemic, go back to the early stage disease. Uh, please, I would definitely caution everybody and all of us that these are guidelines, they are not really rules, and it's a good idea to put them within the context of what we're dealing with, but really we are very delighted. This is the wonderful work of many of my colleagues who are here on the podium, as well as many other colleagues worldwide that really led for this kind of you know, further enhancement of the uh, BCLC criteria or any of the guidelines based on the development of those new therapies. 
Not only that, but also this is dependent on all the novelty that we all have been involved with. As you can see here, 2000s were really the start of the HCC world, 2007 with the advent of the Surafnib. And then after that, it's not like we're doing nothing for 10 years until 10, 2017, but really a lot of work has been looked into either novelties, approaches, or even combination approaches that sadly did not necessarily fare well, but we learned a lot from it, enough that by 2017 we have the second tyrosine kinase after that, immediately, for the first time ever, we have the checkpoint inhibitors being looked at with the nivolumab. After the all, we continued on those two lines of the tyrosine kinase inhibitor with lymvatinib in 2018, pembrolizumab in the IO on the other hand. Then in 2019, we have the cabozantinib and dramisurumab immediately after as NTVGF. Afterwards, we start moving into the new era with the advent of 2020 with the combination of therapy with the epinevo and then the atizobav and then lately in 2022, the dorvatrami. So this is really, relatively speaking, and I'm sure you all agree, compared to any other disease, this is rather very fast in regard to the development of all those therapies, and we're going to cover them all today. And uh, if anything, the algorithm now of the BCLC, this is kind of like a variant of what we just showed a second ago, but as you see, they fit in all those therapies in uh, the guidelines of the BCLC. And again, as I mentioned, these are really guidelines. There are a lot of variations that you can consider in that regard. But most importantly, is what we're going to focus on is that systemic part. But as you can see, it has a lot of errors that connected to the earlier stage disease and same time could be a two-way street. This is really what's incredible about it. Is that it's not only a one way phenomenon in regard to staging of the disease, but you can really reverse from systemic therapy to local or vice versa because of the advent of the disease in different ways with the new therapies that we have as well. And by the way, you have all of this available to you and uh, to download, especially this one is a good tool to at least kind of be able to pull out um, uh, what will be a good and appropriate uh, um, approach to the therapy per se. And uh, with this, uh, if anything, uh, yes, there's a big need for all this. So if you're still not convinced why you're having uh, this nice dinner here, so if anything, there is really a lot going on. Uh, based on new data, we can see that, uh, believe it or not, despite all the events that we just talked about and we're going to discuss in further details, still a good number of patients only get only sorafenib. And this is because there's not necessarily a good... Uh, updates and awareness by all our colleagues in regard to the new therapies that are available to us. And not only that, but many patients go untreated. And especially there's a certain comfort zone in regard to especially uh, the uh, community that, you know what, it's uh, holding, it's steady, not causing symptoms, why should I? And patients maybe might at best get a first-line therapy, but not necessarily a second line. And what's even more concerning, even for the intermediate stage disease, there's a lot of patients that go without therapy. And these numbers, as you can see, in like on the average, about 50% of patients don't get therapy or some limited therapy is a concern that we are all responsible for and our obligation to continue to be able to uh, get the opportunity for the patients to be treated appropriately and correctly, especially as the median survival continue to evolve in the positive direction for patients. They can really live with HCC. That's the important message that we need to pass on. 
So with this, I'm going to pass it on to the first uh, seminar. And again, one more time, it's really a great welcome to Dr. Lipika Goyal, who is uh, uh, the uh, 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 Associate Professor of Medicine and the Division of Oncology at the Stanford School of Medicine in Stanford in California. And Dr. Amit Singhal, uh, Professor of Medicine and Willis Mendeshare at the Liver Disease, Chief Hepatology and Medical uh, Director of the Liver Transplant Program at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Uh, please, uh, Lipika, we'll start with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kassan. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about frontline treatments and immunotherapy for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. You know, several years ago, as Gassan showed with the timeline, we didn't have a lot to talk about. And now the question is, how do you fit everything we want to talk about in a small <laughs> seminar? And, um, you know, there's been a lot of tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have been approved in uh, HCC. And now there are multiple immunotherapy agents that are approved in HCC. And that's going to be the focus of my talk today. So we've been for decades trying to harness the power of the immune system to fight cancer. And it's really been the last 10 years with the advent of checkpoint inhibitors that we've really been seeing widespread activity in a variety of cancers. And we're very happy that in the last five to six years, we're seeing activity in HCC in particular. And there are two classes of immunotherapy agents that have been approved in HCC. One is the CTLA-4 pathway inhibitors and the other is the PD-1 pathway inhibitors. And they have distinct but complementary actions. So the antibodies that hit CTLA-4, they really work on the periphery, on the peripheral cells. That they prime T cells, the CD4 positive cells, and those are often in the lymph nodes. And then there's the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors that work on the cells that are inside the tumor and tumor microenvironment, the CD8 positive cells. But those cells have to be present in order for the PD-1 and PD-L1 uh, inhibitors to work. And so we are going to talk about regimens that include one or both of these types of agents. And so where did this story start? The story started with nivolumab, and it was actually the Checkmate 040 study, where the question was, can you safely give nivolumab or give immunotherapy to patients with HCC? And there was concern that maybe there would be liver toxicity or patients with virally mediated hepatitis. Maybe they would have a lot of toxicity. And what we found in that initial study, which was nivolumab in patients with refractory HCC that had previously been treated with serafinib, we found that patients actually tolerated it very well. And there was a 15 to 20% response rate. And it was based on that study that nivolumab was then moved to the front line in a randomized phase three study in the Checkmate 459 study. And this was a study looking at superiority of nivolumab compared to serafinib in patients with unresectable or metastatic HCC. And as you can see here, the median survival with uh, nivolumab was 16.4 months compared to 14.7 months with serafinib. And it did not meet its primary endpoint of showing superior overall survival. So it was a negative study, but it is on the NCCN guidelines for frontline therapy. And there were two main things. One, the response rate with nivolumab was 15% compared to 7% with serafinib, and the responses were durable. So it showed a certain kind of efficacy that was encouraging. And second, there was a nice safety profile. So this was a survey done for quality of life using the FACT-HEP survey, which is a disease-specific questionnaire looking at the effects of HCC and the treatment of HCC on quality of life. And the completion rate was high, with more than 70% of patients completing at all time points through week 113. And as you can see, the nivolumab arm was favored over serafinib. So again, this is on the NCCN guidelines. 
So what were the things that we learned from uh, early experience with immunotherapy? So single-agent nivolumab had durable responses, had manageable safety profile, and promising survival in patients with HCC. And then Checkmate 459 was a negative study and showing superior, it did not show superiority to serafinib, but overall still an option for patients. So based on this, we moved over to combination therapy because we found that single-agent immunotherapy was not going to do it. So I'm going to talk about a couple of different combinations. Two are approved in HCC in the first-line setting. The atezolizumab plus bevacizumab combination. Atezolizumab is a PDL1 inhibitor. Bevacizumab is a monoclonal antibody against VEGF. And this regimen has a couple of claims to fame. First, it was the first regimen to beat serafinib after many shots on goal over many years. Second, it was the first to have a double-digit um, uh, response rate, which we had not seen in any randomized phase three study in HCC. And third, again, it was the first combination to get approved in, for HCC. This was for patients who had no prior systemic therapy for HCC. They had a good performance status. They had a child pew score of A, and our category of A, and they all had an EGD within six months to check for varices, and I'll talk about that. So this study had a dual primary endpoint for OS and PFS, and you can see for overall survival, it was about 19 months in the atezobev arm, about 13 months in the serafinib arm, and you can see that at uh, 18 months, you can see a separation of the curves that looks very nice. Again, it was also positive in the, um, for PFS. When you look at the response rate, as I mentioned, a double-digit response rate, 30%. We had not seen this before in HCC. And you can see the duration of response was also very encouraging at 18 months. There was also, impressively, a complete response rate of 8% in the atezobev arm. When you look at the safety, there were no new or surprising safety signals. What we saw was the safety overall favored the atezobev arm in terms of less diarrhea, less hand-foot syndrome, less fatigue. Um, you did see some VEGF-related toxicities, such as hypertension and proteinuria. Very importantly, one of the things that we worried about with this regimen was, is there going to be extra bleeding? We know patients with HCC can have varices. Some of them have a history of a GI bleed. And so it was really important as an eligibility criteria for this study that people had to have had an EGD within six months and their varices had to be treated per institutional protocol. And when you look at the rate of grade three for bleeding or hemorrhage between the two arms, you see that it was actually quite similar, around 6% in both arms. And so in, we encourage all oncologists and treating physicians who are taking care of these patients to certainly do these EGDs before people go on to this therapy. So now let's move to a case. So 60-year-old woman with NASH and compensated cirrhosis presented with right upper quadrant pain. Her ultrasound showed that she had a liver mass. The MRI showed that it was 6.5 centimeters, and it had the radiological criteria to show that it was HCC. <coughs> It had no vascular invasion and no metastatic disease. She had preserved liver function, and her platelets were 90, and her ECOG performance status was zero. She had taste, and then she was referred for transplant. And then on repeat imaging, she actually had progression, and the dominant lesion was now 8 centimeters, and she had two new lesions, 3.2 and 1.9 centimeters. She did have a biopsy of the liver lesion, and that showed that it was HCC. 
Luckily, her liver function was preserved, and it's always something to think about because sometimes after liver-directed therapy, we do sometimes see a decrement in liver function, um, but luckily hers was preserved. She maintained her excellent performance status, her AFP went up a little bit, and her EGD showed that she had large varices. So, Ghassan, you are like the best moderator here, so I'll <laughs> defer to you to moderate the discussion around this. Sure, absolutely. Thanks so much for this. Uh, and if anything... Uh, uh, it's very important to really look at the perspective of, number one, the advent of the uh, increase of the cases of HCC, which I mentioned at the beginning, and I'm very glad that the case that actually uh, Lipica is bringing up is actually NASH-based, because this is really the key element over here. With this said now, we have the issue of the recommendation of the referral for the transplant and the taste. And with this, I would like to really start first always with the hepatologist because they can give us a little bit of an input in regard to where this might go. And I meet your thoughts on here. So. Yeah, so I think, Kassan, when this patient first presented, um, they presented within, and we'll get to this, you know, downstaging criteria. So presented with, even though they're beyond an early stage, they're beyond, they're within, um, you know, transplant criteria. And I think doing local regional therapy and considering transplant is important because this is a chance at curative therapy up front. Unfortunately, this patient has progressive disease and is um, would hereby deemed uh, to have taste failure. Um, and you know, not only because of progression, but even though they remain a child PUA, you're starting to see their early signs of liver function decrement. And sort of this is one of the issues with local regional therapy that you can start to see some decrement in liver function and overdoing taste by the next time, if you repeated taste, yeah. because you're like, oh, they're still liver localized, the next time they wouldn't be child PUA, they'd be yeah. child PUB. Sure. And so at this point, I think many of us, including our center, um, would move on to systemic therapy. And sure. sort of given the exciting yeah. data that Lipic has already presented yeah. um, and will present, um, you know, we would use an IO-based regimen. And the reason I start with you, I mean, because it's very important for our colleagues to really recognize that uh, the place where most of the transplant waiting or eligible or potentially eligible patients are actually most of the time they spend in the waiting room. And this is really a big problem is that patients, unfortunately, like our patients over here, really evolve in regard that they progress disease as we see. Now we have patients now with clearly advanced disease and same time, however, with varices. And this actually, I'll go back to Dr. Goyal and Lipica, uh, based on the data that you just showed us about like what are the novel therapeutics interventions that you have, what will be, based on those facts that you have in front of you, will be the therapy that you'll recommend now that we clearly need systemic therapy? Yeah. So given that the patient has large varices, you know, we think of varices either small or large, given they, they're large, I would first treat the varices, you know, send to my colleague, Dr. Single, and ask him to help me out and, you know, see if the patient can get banded or what other treatment he recommends. I think a tezobev, after people get treated for their varices, is still a safe regimen, but they certainly need to get treated for their varices. But now we also have an additional first-line regimen, so depending on how urgently the patient needs to start treatment, and if we want to start treatment on the sooner side, we have another excellent uh, front-line therapy that we can offer patients. And how much do you wait between the varices treatment until you consider atezolizumab, bifizolizumab? Yeah, so it's often a conversation with our hepatologists and see how concerned they are and how much banding they did and how long they would like to wait. How do you advise your oncologist, Dr. Singal? Yeah, so I think that, you know, there's, there's the black and white and then there's the gray zone. So the black and white, you know, so people with a history of variceal bleeding excluded from in grade 150, I think 
Um, we'd all recognize those patients as being high risk of going on a tezobev. Um, you know, small varices and no varices, that's the sort of black or white, depending on sort of, but you get easy sort of decision in terms of um, what you would do in that case. And I think these large varices um, are sort of where you fall in the gray zone. And the management of these is a large unknown. So to kind of come into the Imbrave 150 trial, we know that they were, quote unquote, adequately treated, but the details of that treatment, unfortunately, are unknown. Um, and right now, there's a discord between um, what some physicians recommend and other physicians recommend. So some physicians would recommend banding. Um, and, you know, the typical waiting period after banding would be at least 10 to 14 days, given the risk of um, banding ulcers um, and risk of bleeding from BEV, you know, or somewhat related to BEV, and the setting of that banding. Other people in this case, um, particularly um, those in Europe, would be much more apt to use beta blockers. You avoid the banding ulcers. You don't have that waiting period. I think this is a, an area that's a complete gray zone. It's a data-free zone. Um, and the most recent ASLD guidance, which just came out sort of a week ago, says that you can consider one or the other. There's no strict recommendation of beta blockers or banding, but we say at least one session of banding, and we say to wait at least 10 to 14 days before starting BEV. Fair. And the last question in regard to the case, and Dr. Singal, uh, that's really very important that what you're bringing up in regard to the banding and the varices, and Dr. Goyal, also the choice of the atezobev, but also, Dr. Goyal, you brought up another option. So let's actually, Dr. Dr. Kassib, ask you, do you really want to go through all of this, or can you consider something else as therapy? Yeah, so if you ask this question, you know, if you asked it six, seven months ago, it would have been a dilemma, right? Now we do have a frontline immunotherapy strategy that we can use. And um, um, so that's, you know, one of the patient population that could benefit from this upfront. Um, also, this case beautifully, you know, highlights the importance of the multidisciplinary approach that we all use for HCC patients here. So if we have to use antiangiogenesis here for any reason, I really think one of the algorithms we follow at our institution is to look at comprehensively at everything, platelet count, you know, it is 90,000, INR is normal. Um, you look at the portal vein, it's not occupied by a tumor, so you don't have this mechanical, because these issues could, even if the viruses are small, could complicate things. If the platelets are 50,000, you have portal vein thrombosis, and the risk, even small viruses, they will progress in six, seven months to large varices. So I agree totally with looking at it from you know, this uh, comprehensive manner, starting beta blockers. A patient like this, I will go for immunotherapy upfront. Okay. And of course, uh, none of my colleagues brought it up, but I will spell it out. And Dr. Go uh, Dr. Uh, uh, you know, Goyal just brought it up already. Dervatrami, why do we have to go through all of this? Dervatrami is an option. What do you think? You are herald heralding my next slide, Dr. <laughs> all right, here we go. So let's go. All right, yes. good. Um, so I think we talked about a lot of these different things. Uh, and we want to talk about child PUB status. If this patient had child PUB status, what would be the options? And so... Yep. You know, right now for child PUB, we have some data with nivolumab, um, single agent nivolumab, and um, that would certainly be an option for patients. There are, is also data for serafinib that we can use in the child PUB setting. We certainly need to develop more data for patients with child PUB because the vast majority of our studies are in the setting of child PUA, and all randomized phase three studies are in the setting of child PUA. By and, that. Yeah, and we'll pose a question here for Dr. Uh, Singal. In regard to the child PUB, 
to be fair, all what Dr. Goyal just brought up is absolutely correct, and this is by the book. But at the same time, there's quite a bit of comfort in regard to the use of checkpoint inhibitors, even with CHARP-UB. Tell us about that from the hepatology standpoint. Yeah, I think when you take a look at CHARP-UB, it's a heterogeneous area, right? So a CHARP-UB is not a CHARP-UB. There can be a B7, a B8, and a B9. Um, and so, and there's different ways of getting to be a child pub category. Um, I think that we know that a child pub seven acts more like a child pub a, and a child pub nine score acts more like a child pub c. So there's heterogeneity in terms of prognosis and tolerability of these regimens within the child pub category. Um, I think we're starting to see some data, um, not only nivolumab, but even some of these other agents in terms of CHALP-UB. Um, they appear to be tolerable. I think we're going to need more and more data in terms of what is the actual value of these regimens in CHALP-UB patients. But I think like um, Dr. Goyal said, I mean, like, you know, we personally at our center um, extrapolate the nivolumab data, and um, Dervalumab has become our um, single agent of choice in CHALP-UB patients. Fair enough, fair enough, good. All right, so we'll move on to uh, what's going to happen afterwards, and uh, you can please carry on, Ripka. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as Ghassan presented the slide, the, for a while, BCLC staging uh, was really good at helping us think about treatments for earlier stages, and in the advanced stages, we really had serafib and not other options. And then as you saw, starting in 2017, we started to have multiple other options, and now immunotherapy and multiple TKIs have made it onto the BCLC staging algorithm and how we treat these patients. So as Dr. Abu-Alfa was bringing up, the <laughs> regimen with Dervalimab and Tremolumab is an excellent option for the frontline treatment of advanced HCC. So this is a combination of Dervalimab, which is a PD-L1 inhibitor, and Tremolumab, which is a CTLA-4 antibody. And it was a frontline study in a very similar population to the Imbrave 150 study, um, with one exception, with one major exception, which is that this study excluded patients with main portal vein thrombosis. And initially, this study had four arms: Dervalimab, Dervalimab, and low-dose tremi given four times, and then Dervalimab with high-dose tremi given once um, as a priming dose, and then the fourth arm with serafinib. And then based on some phase two data, the Dervalimab low-dose tremi arm was uh, stopped, and the trial ended up going on as Dervalimab, Dervatremi, and Serafinib. And there were two things that we looked at in the study. One was looking at superiority of Dervatremi versus Serafinib, and the second was looking at non-inferiority of Dervalimab versus Serafinib. And this was a positive study showing that with the stride regimen, which is again the high dose tremolimumab for one dose, um, the overall survival was 16 months compared to serafinib, where it was a little over 13 months. And this was a study which showed that um, dervatremi is a, certainly an option for patients in the front line. And also very helpful was when you look at the um, the 36-month overall survival. It was one of the first, is the first study in the HCC where you see a greater than 30% overall survival at, um, at, three at three years. Sorry, I think I said three months, but I meant to say three years. And also with Dervalimab, it showed that Dervalimab was non-inferior to uh, serafinib. When you look at the objective response rate, you can see that the objective response rate was 20% with the stride regimen, 17% with dervalimab, 5% with serafinib. And as with the Atezobev study, we saw some uh, complete responses with dervalimab and tremolimumab. And then also the median time to response was also short at two months. 
When we look at the side effects, overall, it was a study that showed a manageable side effect profile with the combination of tremolimumab and um, dervalimab. The main side effects we saw were diarrhea, some abdominal pain, some itchiness, some rash. And overall, the risk of having side effects that required steroids is immune-related AEs. It was around 20% with the stride regimen, around 10% with dervalimab. And um, when we look at you know, other studies with CCA4 antibodies in HCC, namely ipilimumab in combination with nivolumab, the rate of immune-related adverse events requiring steroids was around 51%. So overall, this was a well-tolerated regimen with the ctla 4 pd one combination. So beyond Dervatremi uh, and beyond Dervalimab, there's also another study that showed single-agent PD-1 in the front line. This is another non-inferiority study showing that tizolizumab compared to serafinib, tizolizumab was non-inferior to serafinib. And so now we've had three different studies looking at frontline single-agent P1 pathway inhibitors compared to serafinib. Dervalimab showed non-inferiority. Tizolizumab showed non-inferiority. Nivolumab failed to show superiority, but certainly an option for patients. And so what are the take-homes? How do we think about selection of frontline therapy for HCC? So one of the things we ask ourselves first, as Dr. Kossab said, he would give that patient immunotherapy. We always try to think, can we give our patients immunotherapy in the front line? If they don't have any contraindications to immunotherapy, then we have two great options, atezolizumab and bevacizumab, and dervalimab and tremolimumab. If a patient doesn't have any contraindications to immune checkpoint inhibitors, but they're not an ideal, combina- they're not an ideal candidate for combination therapy, then as I mentioned, there are a couple different options for single-agent PD-1 or pd one therapies. And then if someone does have contraindications to immunotherapy, then we have tyrosine kinase inhibitors, lenvatinib, and serafinib. You know, the way I think about immune checkpoint inhibitors is you give a chance, a patient a chance to hit a home run. You get to give a patient a chance to um, really have durable responses. I've had multiple patients who have gone on Durvatremi or Atezobev, um, and also even single-agent nivolumab and nivoipi, who were on therapy for about two years, got off therapy, and for four years, five years, they have no HCC. And 10 years ago, we could never even dream that with the TKIs, you'd have a patient with advanced HCC who was living for five years, and then two, someone who you know, is off all therapy and doing really well and having one good scan after another. So it's a really encouraging time in HCC to be having all these different therapies. I'll go through these briefly because these are not approved regimens that are... Uh, options for patients at the moment, but these were trials looking at different combinations. One was the LEAP002 study, which was the combination of pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib. Pembrolizumab is a PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib compared to lenvatinib alone. And, you know, the combination of pembro plus lenvatinib certainly showed encouraging activity. The median overall survival was 20.2 months. The overall response rate was 26 months. And numerically, this was higher than what we saw with the lenvatinib arm. But it didn't meet its primary endpoint, and it was a negative study. But one of the teaching moments from this study was it really uh, echoed the efficacy that we saw with lenvatinib from the REFLECT study. And we saw in the lenvatinib arm that the median overall survival was 19 months. And if we remember from the REFLECT study, the median survival was around 13 months. And this reflects a couple of things. One, perhaps we've gotten better over time in um, being able to manage the side effects of lenvatinib. You know, it's a learning curve for all of us as oncologists to learn how to give these drugs and manage the toxicities. And then second, when lenvatinib got approved, there were not 
other options. There weren't a lot of other options in HCC. And now for patients who have progression on lenvatinib, we certainly have other options. So these patients uh, got different treatments. And then the camerlizumab plus rivaserinib study. So rivaserinib, formerly called apatinib, is a potent inhibitor of VEGFR2. And there was a positive study of um, rivaserinib versus placebo. Uh, it was a Chinese study. It's called the AHELP study. It was a phase three study in patients with refractory HCC. Um, and that was positive. And then this was moved into the frontline setting in combination with camerlizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor. And this was a pivotal phase three study. And it showed the superiority of camerlizumab versus, and plus rivaserimab compared to serafinib. Um, the one thing to know about this study, or a couple things to know about this study, is one, there was a reasonably high rate of grade three, four toxicity. It was 80% for the combination compared to around 50% for serafinib. And as you can see, the hepatotoxicity rate for grade three, four was 33% in the combo arm compared to 12% in the serafinib arm. And then you saw some VEGF-related toxicity, such as hypertension and proteinuria, which were also appeared to be higher in the combination. And then this study was also um, mainly done in Asia. Over 80% of the patients were from Asia, and 75% of patients had hepatitis B. So the applicability of this regimen to other populations is still needs to be investigated. Um, this is a study that we're excited to see the results of that have not been reported yet, the, 90, the Checkmate 90W study. And this is similar population that we've been looking at for frontline studies, the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab, the CTLA-4 antibody ipilimumab, compared to either serafinib or lenvatinib, um, investigator's choice. So going back to Lisa's case, so as Dr. Single said, this patient was a the disease was a taste failure. Um, what if the EGD within six months had confirmed recent bleeding or untreatable varices? So uh, definitely we have more and added on more information over here. So uh, what will be the next plan then? And uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Kassip. So uh, what will be next after the uh, stride or the TKIs? Yeah, so for a patient who had been exposed to immunotherapy and yet the uh, risk of the bleeding is still there, uh, the options are in here because you used already um, dual checkpoint inhibitors, um, clinical trials versus, you know, mass you know, kind of aggressive treatment of the varices. I usually, um, that's one of the reasons I use single agent up front to, to save the, double, the dual Derva is approved now, even over nivolumab, because nivolumab has been retracted at a certain point, and we, now we have derva versus derva trimi. So for these patients, I usually start with derva alone. If they progress, I add trimi. So you still have the option. But if you exhaust both you know, drugs up front, you can't even do nivo-epi anymore. You have to use other mechanisms of action, clinical trials. Or as you know, uh, Amit said, if you have aggressive GI who can get you, you know, the treatment and the banding and within four weeks, Weeks, you can do that, but apart from that, any anti-angiogenesis would be very risky in, uh, with recent bleeding. Thank you for that. And Dr. Goyal, so um, because you brought up the data in regard to both the epinevo and the Dervatrami, how much in your, ex in your experience and in your practice are you seeing the concern about the anti-CDLA-4 adverse events? Yeah, it's a great question. The thing to remember is they have been approved in different lines of therapy. So Dervatremi in the front line, Ipinevo um, in 
beyond first line after serafinib. Um, but we do see with the IPI plus Nevo combination at the doses that were uh, approved by the FDA, we do see a higher rate of um, immune-related toxicities requiring steroids in my experience and what they saw in the trial, though there's obviously um, pitfalls of doing cross-trial comparison because one was a frontline treatment-naive setting and one was, you know, later lines and, you know, slightly different. But overall, I think it's relatively known in the field around tremolumab versus ipilimumab, the different toxicity profiles. But overall, even with the ipinevo um, combination, the side effects are manageable if you work with different experts at your institution, because I think over time with HCC, we become much more comfortable in managing immune-related toxicities. So the key is just to be vigilant for them, get on top of them early, and I find ipinevo to be also a very well-tolerated regimen for patients. Uh, uh, thank you so much for that, Dr. Guell. And Dr. Singal, uh, please your perspective on that from the hepatologic standpoint and what you'd like to add on? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the differences between stride um, and ipinevo is how often the CTLA-4 is given, right? Stride is up front, yep. tremi one time, whereas the ipinevo, um, you know, the ipi is given um, uh, over time. And so I think that's probably part of the reason um, why stride is so well tolerated compared to some of the, the AEs that we see with ipinevo. So um, while the combination is, is higher than single agent, I think that stride... Is, is generally well tolerated, and I think it's part of the reason and beauty of sort of the stride regimen. Um, this patient, um, you know, Gassan, to your point, if um, had the EGD confirmed recent variceal bleeding or untreatable varices, I think this is generally someone who would not have gone into MGRA 150, and I think, yep. you know, this patient otherwise is a great candidate for IO. There's no other contraindications. And so if, our, if this patient was seen in our center, we would start Dervatremi up front. No, thank you very much for that. And uh, the, again, you, you show our frustration is that really there are options and already even there are coming from other parts of the world, as we just saw the Cambrizumab, Reversarinib, the Tismilizumab. So there's a lot of options that we consider for our patients and we have to really have an open view in that regard. And this is what Dr. Goyal kindly kind of helped us in that regard. We'd like to bring one more perspective in all of this. And uh, this is actually an important uh, uh, view that... Uh, we're excited, we're happy about all the new therapies that are evolving in regard to HCC, but uh, this is nice work that uh, actually was just reported not that long ago, and uh, we can see that sadly, uh, based on what Dr. Monge, who is one of the NCI fellows, has brought in, is that barely uh, the access to clinical trials for HCC in the United States for the Hispanic population, which sadly have high incidence of HCC, is very, very limited. If you look carefully at those thin slivers and all those circles in regard to different therapies, you'll notice that this red kind of sliver is the accrual or add-on of the patients of Hispanic uh, um, uh, ethnicity onto clinical trials. That's very concerning. And this is really one of the challenges that we have, despite how proud we are of all that work, we want to make sure that's accessible to everybody. And if we were to take it onto a global scale, it's even more concerning. As you should know, that the highest incidence of HCC in the world is actually in the continent of Africa because of the HCC related to hepatitis C in uh, northern Africa, especially in Egypt, at the same time, uh, 
SB with the um, high incidence of uh, HCC in sub-Saharan Africa. This is work that we just published with Aortic uh, in, in uh, Senegal uh, just two years ago. And in polling, it closed about 400 or so physicians and healthcare workers in Africa in regard to their accessibility therapy. As you can see, sorafenib is still the major driver. And 84% in North and South Africa were really through the high GDP is, is still sorafenib. As you see, also in Central Africa, barely 27% have sorafenib. But look at the numbers for atezolizumab, bafizumab, barely on the average about like 4 to 7% of the patients might have access to the atezolizumab plus bafizumab. What's even more concerning is that, sadly, despite that we proved above and beyond that doxorubicin does not work for HCC, still it's being used in Africa, as we can see over here on the average, about 10%. And the last number to be concerned about is that extreme low number in the right lower corner, half of the 50% of the physicians don't have access to any therapy for HCC in Central Africa because of the uh, cost or because of availability. So as you see, we have to really look into this. I'm not really preaching on that, but it's very important that all of us do recognize how proud we are of all what we're doing. But of course, we have a big challenge how to make sure that these therapies are actually available and accessible to patients who have the disease who really need some of the most, and not only live with the 10% of the patients who have the disease and the ability to really get access to it. So, uh, if anything, uh, uh, how to fix that, uh, because we don't want to just talk about it, like we don't want to say, okay, there is a certain inequity or there is a certain issue in regard to accessibility, but how to fix it and how to really look into those diversity uh, inclusion in regard to clinical trials or even accessibility to drugs. And I would love to really, it's an open thought necessarily in specific question, but I would love to hear from each one of my colleagues any thought that reflect on that data to really see how we can build that perspective and maybe we can start all the way with Dr. Kasim, who proudly is from Egypt. He lived and he knows very well about the highest incidence of HCC <laughs> in Egypt. And Ahmed, please, your thoughts. Yeah, so, so this is, you know, of course, um, a global issue that hits home when it comes to hepatocellular carcinoma because most of the patients, they have this issue even in the U.S., you know, the healthcare disparity, the high mortality rate in specific ethnicities like Hispanics and African-American in the U.S., for example. And it taps into this big, big issue of the universal application of um, uh, drugs and um, globally. Not pick, this is not unique to HCC. All other um, cancer types, even other disease types, right? Hypertension, coronary artery disease, anything preventive um, um, s uh, strategies and preventive services such as mammogram and others. So it is a much bigger issue, of course, when it comes to healthcare in general. For HCC in particular, I think one of the areas that we could improve on is to um, expand access um, of clinical trials to these underserved populations and countries. In the meantime, before doing that, we have to ensure that there is some infrastructure, the necessary infrastructure to uh, enable us to do those trials, to collect data and samples and test them and so on. So it is much more complicated than it sounds, but we have to start somewhere. Great, thank you. And uh, Dr. Singal, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, Gassan, so thank you for highlighting this. I think it's an important problem. Um, I think there's a couple things. The first is that, you know, we talk about racial ethnic disparities. I think we have to recognize that these disparities extend beyond race ethnicity. There's um, also studies talking about sex disparities in terms of enrollment and access to these medications. There's clearly socioeconomic disparities which intersect with these racial and ethnic 
um, disparities. Um, you know, it's interesting because I actually recently gave a presentation at DDW on disparities, and somebody stood up and asked how we solve that, and I'm like, this is a much bigger question than, you know, we're going to solve today. Um, you know, so, you know, the answer to how we, how we solve disparities is complex and would require hours of discussion, um, and we probably would still have many, much, many more things to talk about. But I think the first thing that I'd say is I commend um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies, which I think have now, because of these recent data, made a concerted effort to reach out to institutions that actually have increased diversity. So I think you're going to see improvements in this moving forward. But I think Ahmed's point in terms of also establishing infrastructure is important. Because, you know, we, we work in a tertiary care center and a safety net health system. The infrastructures for clinical trial recruitment differ between those two different health systems. And I think the first thing that we need to do is not only companies reaching out to these health systems to, to enroll them, but we have to build infrastructure in these areas that have higher proportions of racial and ethnic uh, minorities, low SES groups. So there's going to have to be a, a true investment in this from a financial perspective and infrastructure perspective if we want to solve this moving forward. Thank you for that. And Dr. Guya, I'll tell you that you moved uh, to California, and uh, understandably and respectfully, California has a major Hispanic population. Please tell us your hands-on experience, and not necessarily even how you imagine you have a patient of a Hispanic descent, you want to explain a clinical trial, how far would you go? Yeah, I mean, equally for someone who's not Hispanic, I would say, and I feel like one of the things that we need to do is increase different languages for the consents being translated into different languages, for it being accessible to a lot of different um, uh, ethnicities and people who speak different languages. I would say one of the great things about COVID is we got to see what it looks like to administer clinical trials remotely. And I think as Dr. Single is saying, um, people live in different areas and not everyone is accessing care at the largest cancer centers, which have a lot of HCC trials. And so one of the things we did during COVID was we would actually administer clinical trials locally where people lived and they would get their, um, their follow-up after they had their first cycle or first couple of months at the mothership where we were giving treatment. We then had people get evaluated by their local oncologist and send in labs and, you know, talk to them on the phone, do video visits. And I think if we're able to actually make that work at a larger scale, I think that's going to increase access for people. And the Thank other, may I say one more thing, which is just that um, I think there's certainly an issue with clinical trial accrual in underrepresented minorities. I think there's an issue with clinical trial accrual generally in adult <laughs> populations. We know that about 5% of patients with uh, 5% of adults with cancer go on a clinical trial compared to over 90% of patients with um, pediat pediatric patients. A variety of reasons for that, of course, but certainly I think just a lot more education about what clinical trials can offer and a lot more community engagement around research is going to help the field overall. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Gual. And you're absolutely right about that. Compared to the pediatric age group, actually, in adults, we have really this big general uh, phenomenon. But as you notice, and I like very much what actually Dr. Singal brought in, which is like, you know, how do you fix that? We don't want to continue just to talk about it. If anything, really to be engaged in that. I know we humbly, none of us have the answer to that. But at the same time, remember, we're being watched and we're being looked at all the time in that regard. Actually, I just had a meeting with the Attorney General of the country of Ghana, and believe it or not, the question was about how can we get therapy to patients with HCC 
in Ghana. And that's not only one country, all of them are looking. And as we can see, we have to start thinking. And I know many colleagues from the pharmaceutical industry are sitting among us. This is like the message to your companies. You have to start thinking about this potential market, which really where the, ex, where the need for the therapies are. Um, uh, it's a good, important uh, call that we do for our uh, human uh, colleagues, wherever they are in the world with HCC. With this said, we're going to go back to, again, what happened in the second line and what happened at progression and recommendations for advanced ACC, and I pass it on here to Dr. Singal. Um, thanks, Kassan. Uh, so that's going to be a hard um, act to follow, Lipica. So, um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's um, clearly been an exciting time in the first line setting, um, and I think the nice thing is that, um, you know, the second line setting has also seen advances. Um, now, the question, um, you know, much to the sort of same discussion that Kassan brought up in the first line, is we know there is data, and the question is how do you actually make decisions between all of the choices that you have in front of you um, in the second line space and ladder spaces? So um, this goes back to the BCLC algorithm, um, which talks not only about the options that we have in the first line setting, but also talks about options that we have in sequential uh, settings in terms of second line and beyond. So when we take a look at this, um, you know, I think it's always good to just be grounded in terms of the actual data. So the actual data are these three trials, um, which were large phase three randomized control trials comparing um, three different agents compared to placebo at the time. So in order, um, the resource trial was the first um, trial that showed um, uh, efficacy of an agent in the second line setting. This was regorafenib versus placebo. Uh, resource required patients to tolerate serafinib in the first line setting, but have disease progression, and they were randomized then to receive regorafenib or placebo. And the primary outcome overall survival, and you can see a significant improvement in survival with a 37% reduction in mortality. Uh, median survival, 10.6 versus 7.8. We then had the celestial trial, which um, uh, compared cabozantinib uh, versus placebo. This is, um, you know, a, I think the broadest um, of these uh, um, latter line trials because uh, not only did it allow patients who progressed on serafinib, but also intolerant of serafinib, and included people in the second line um, or third line setting, which um, one would argue now looking back was very forward thinking um, in terms of including second line and third line setting. So about 27% of patients in the celestial trial received cabozantinib um, in, this, in the third line setting, um, all patients receiving prior serafinib at some point. Um, once again, a significant improvement in overall survival um, as well as progression-free survival in the celestial trial with a hazard ratio of 0.76 for median survival, um, point estimates of 10.2 versus 8.0 for median survival. And finally, we have the REACH-2 trial. So the story of ramucirumab is interesting. So ramucirumab first evaluated in the REACH trial, all comers, comparing ramucirumab versus placebo. And in that all-comer trial, ramucirumab failed to show a benefit compared to placebo. In a post-talk analysis, they started to see a signal where ramucirumab had um, improved survival versus placebo for those patients with an AFP 400 or greater. And they thereby went back, did a full new randomized control trial, i.e. REACH-2, randomized people with, a, um, with an AFP 400 nanograms per milliliter or greater to ramucirumab or placebo, um, and once again showing a significant benefit of ramucirumab in that selected patient population. Median survival of 8.5 versus 7.3. Now, ramucirumab is interesting because it's the first biomarker-driven therapy that we have in HCC. That being said, 
it's important to note that this shows that ramiserumab is beneficial in those patients with a high AFP, not in those with a low AFP, but does not actually demonstrate differential impact versus some of the other therapies. So this doesn't mean that in those patients who have a high AFP, you should preferentially use ramiserumab. It just means it works in that patient population. I think sort of a, a misunderstanding sometimes of the literature that I, that I see um, talking to some, some of our colleagues in the, in the community. So now, all of those trials were with prior serafinib, and that's because that's when those trials were done. We just heard about all of the exciting advances that we've seen in the first-line setting, Tezobev and Dervatremi now being preferred therapies in the first-line setting. So now the question is, what do we use? We don't have any data that's randomized phase three data for therapies after Tezobev or after Dervatremi. And so because we don't have data doesn't mean we have to go back and do these large phase three studies or doesn't mean that we don't have any therapy. We then have to rely on real world evidence in terms of taking a look at how these available agents work after first line atezobev or dervatremi. And we're starting to see these um, uh, real world evidence uh, studies come to light. So here you can see two of those real-world evidence studies, one with lunvatinib and one with cabozatinib. There are many others that are also out there. We, I could spend sort of hours talking about all the other sort of posters, et cetera, that have been presented. I won't. Um, but I think it's the type of thing where these are meant just to show you that there are data for these TKI agents in the second-line setting. Now, you can see here that lunvatinib had a progression-free survival of around 3.7, cabozantinib progression-free survival of 2.1, median survival estimates you can see there are 12.8 and 7.7. This isn't comparative. This is just to show you that these therapies do appear to have some effect and some benefit in the second-line setting, and we can use them. And the studies that exist show a sort of consistent safety profile in the settings after atezobev or dervatremi, as you would imagine, earlier um, settings. Now, we also have some data that's coming out for ipinevo. I know ipinevo isn't approved everywhere, but it, it, as, as you know, it does have um, accelerated approval um, in terms of the U.S. use um, based on Checkmate 040 data. And we see um, here that there are some data that are coming out for ipinevo in the second-line setting after um, a Tezobev failure in the first-line setting. Once again, showing a median progression-free survival of 2.9, median overall survival of 7.4, not meant to be comparative, but just to know that there are data for these second-line therapies after atezobev or dervatremi. So that's the data that exists. We essentially have randomized data after serafinib, and we have some sort of um, you know, case series or small cohort studies after um, doublet, IO, um, uh, and after atezobev and dervatremi, after these doublets and the first-line setting. So let's, let's apply this uh, to our tumor board case. I guess, Kassan, I'm going to let you read and, and moderate here. Yeah, thanks so much for that. And so this time we have a 60-year-old uh, patient with BCLC-C, uh, Sharpu score A, and received as a fourth line atezolizumab plus bevizumab, and subsequently progressed on therapy. And within the context of what we just learned from Dr. Singal, we'll probably pose a question uh, first to uh, Dr. Kassib. So what will be your next step? Yeah, so this is a real you know, case scenario here. So we uh, would look at the whole picture here. How did the patient tolerate atezolizumab? Did they have any immune-related adverse events or mainly anti-angiogenesis adverse events with proteinuria, hypertension? So that could be a major factor. So it's uh, the patient you know, condition, also the um, um, multidisciplinary 
look at um, uh, the patient and his quality of life. If this is a patient who is mainly fatigue and you want to try TKI, you want to um, avoid TKIs, for example. So here the field is wide open and the ASCO guidelines and all other major guidelines are allowing us to, uh, um, to present patients with all of the front and second line to allow them access to these therapies. So um, a common scenario here would be to start TKI and most of us would use linvatinib, for example. If the patient had a hard time with the anti angiogenesis, after this regimen you can do dervatremi. So all depends on how the patient you know, did and the big picture, also the very severe, we didn't talk about it, but a lot of times if this patient has been on the treatment for a year, I always get another EGD. So every year I get EGD because the various you know, conditions could change while on therapy. Thanks so much for that, uh, Dr. Kassab. And uh, Dr. Goyal, let's assume, just for argument's sake, and see if it doesn't matter, what if the patient was on dervatremi? Yeah, well, then that patient has not seen anti-angiogenic therapy. And yeah. my first choice always for second-line therapy, NHCC, is a clinical trial because we have to move the field forward. And so we can certainly use things that are FDA-approved and use them for unapproved indications. But ideally, we want to be able to get more FDA approvals, see what actually works, and help patients move forward. So we're happy that so many companies are developing now in the post-first-line space in HCC. But in a patient who had Dervatremi and has not had an um, anti-angiogenic, I think that there are multiple options. I do think linvatinib is a great choice. I think cabozantinib is a great choice. You know, there's still always serafinib as an option. As, um, and then, you know, regorafinib, ramacirumab, all of these are actually reasonable options. But I think one way of thinking about it is doing like T minus one and thinking about first line options and thinking about linvatinib and serafinib. But I think the jury is not out yet about what to use um, could you also use a Tezobev as your next option? It's certainly an effective regimen, and I think a lot of us would also consider using a Tezobev as our next choice after Dervatremi. Yeah, thanks so much. And by the way, thanks for many of you and those uh, colleagues who are online who are sending questions along the same line in regard to can I use checkpointers on more than occasion. And I will hold off on that. Already we get some suggestion, at least on the question. We don't have the data, but definitely we'll have a little bit more discussion of that as we go. But back to you, Dr. Singal. Yeah, so when we take a look at, um, you know, the take-home points for the selection of second-line HCC therapy, um, you know, basically if somebody receives um, first-line therapy with these newer agents, Tezobev, Dervatremi, or single-agent Derva, I think that, you know, the options for the second-line setting really are TKI or combination IO, once again, with the, with the data for Ipinevo um, coming out after um, these regimens in the, in the first-line setting. Once again, not randomized data, but these, you know, case series that have come out um, so far. Um, and in those patients who receive TKI therapy, I mean, the nice thing is that this is where we have robust evidence, um, um, you know, both phase three as well as the phase two data, um, you know, for these different agents, cabozatinib, regorafinib, uh, ramacirumab, combination IO, and once again, the ipinevo from Checkmuto 40, and the single agent IO, um, Pembro. So, um, you know, it really depends on where you start from your first line, um, but you do have options um, in the second line, and it's really a matter of, once again, how do you select between these different approaches? And with this said, we're going to look into the multimodality combinations got to advanced ACC, and if anything, we'll continue to carry on. Yeah, no, thanks, Kassan. So um, this is, once again, um, I think, exploratory. This is sort of stuff that isn't um, readily or um, often done, um, but I think interesting data in terms of 
um, both emerging as well as, um, you know, hypothesis-generating data, one would argue. So the first is um, actually the launch trial. So this is um, uh, Lenvatinib um, and uh, TACE um, in the setting of advanced HCC with the idea that potentially treating the liver-localized disease with TACE um, in combination with systemic therapy would improve um, survival for those patients with advanced stage disease. So this trial included patients with advanced stage HCC with at least one measurable uh, previously untreated lesion um, in the liver, so single tumor less than 10 centimeters or multiple tumors with less than 50% of the liver involved. All patients having good liver function, good performance status, and then randomized to these two regimens, lenvatinib plus taste versus lenvatinib alone, primary endpoint end being overall survival. Um, and, you know, this trial is interesting because, um, you know, the, the trial showed a significant benefit um, of using LEN plus TACE versus LEN alone. Median survival 17.8 versus 11.5 months. Um, and you can see the different landmarks of ORS at 6 months, 12 months, um, and then at 24 months all being reported there. Um, and, you know, this is really a significant benefit in terms of overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.43. Now... Typically, when one sees a randomized control trial that's positive like this, this would change the field, and this would become standard of care. I think the one thing that to take away as a caveat here is that this trial was largely done in Asia. These patients largely had, um, you know, hepatitis B. Some of these patients, many of these patients having non-serotic disease. And I think, you know, I've already talked about the decrement and liver function that one can have with chemoembolization. And so I think the, the big question here is, does this apply to our patients here in the Western world? And I think that remains unknown. And so I think that despite this being a positive randomized control trial, um, I don't think this has changed practice patterns here in the United States. But it is hypothesis generating. And I think you will see, um, actually I know you will see because I've sort of seen these trials be proposed, um, now for patients with advanced stage disease, potentially trials actually evaluating these combination therapies with the new IO regimens of looking at things like chemoembolization, radioembolization with IO regimens for advanced age HEC. So we'll see if this actually applies to Western world patients um, in, the, in the near future. So the next one, um, I, um, I think this is actually fascinating. So um, I've had the honor to present this a few different times, and I think it's um, pretty cool. So TT fields um, is something that is very different than anything else that we presented. So TT fields are these alternating electric fields that can discharge charged particles um, during cell division, so during mitosis, and this can lead to cell death. Um, and the, the thing is that this actually, as you'll see here in this video, um, uh, you know, it actually is selected to different frequencies, and so will be selected for HEC patients. So it would actually impact dividing cancer cells, but then spare surrounding non-cancerous tissue. So let's take a look at the video um, uh, and, and go from there. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. 
In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Transducer arrays can be placed on the scalp, chest, or torso to deliver TT fields that kill cancer cells. The placement of transducer arrays is personalized for each patient. Okay, um, so frequency tuned, so basically will be selective against dividing cancer cells, um, as I said, and so would impact HEC, um, and because of this frequency would spare the surrounding liver. And so, um, you know, once again, because of this um, can be very effective, um, but safe um, in, these, uh, in these patients. Now, when you take a look at this, what data do we have? So this is basically the phase two HEPA-NOVA trial in advanced stage HCC, um, relatively small, 27 patients, child pew um, seven to eight. Um, and these patients were evaluated once again in a serafinib area, era, uh, TT fields plus serafinib, and then were followed with CTMR every 12 weeks. And we can see here um, in the combination uh, um, arm here, you can see disease control rate, um, 76%. You can see objective responses in right around 10%. Um, and so now um, there's actually a phase three trial that's being planned um, in combination with the Tezobev. So a Tezobev um, in combination with the TT fields. Um, and this has actually been granted FDA breakthrough device designation um, in this advanced stage setting. Um, and then finally, we also have data for SBRT followed by serafinib. This was recently presented by Laura Dawson and colleagues at Astro um, uh, just this past year. Um, and so essentially, we know that SBRT and radiation, external beam radiation therapy in general um, has more and more data coming out that you can actually have very good um, uh, tumor responses. And given better delivery, you can do so in a safe mechanism um, and spare surrounding liver um, and avoid the liver toxicity. And so this was a study that was comparing um, SBRT followed by serafinib versus serafinib alone in those patients with um, uh, um, locally advanced HCC, so those patients typically with tumor thrombus. Um, and what we see here is that um, the median survival um, uh, for patients in the combination arm was higher than that of the serafinib arm, 15.9 versus 12.3. Uh, the trial failed to show statistical significance in part because the trial was prematurely closed given a change in first-line therapy. So when Atezobev and Dervatremi came to market, the trial actually stopped enrollment um, given patients, they thought it was unethical to treat patients with serafinib in the first-line setting. Um, and so they essentially um, uh, um, stopped the trial early, but you do start to see a trend um, with better survival with the combination um, compared to serafinib alone. So I think this is now being followed up with proposals to evaluate SBRT in combination with immunotherapy, um, and so we'll start to see more data for radiation-based uh, therapies um, in, in this setting as well. Well, thanks so much for that, Dr. Uh, Singal. There's more emerging evidence of guiding therapy, and for this, we're going to look into the innovation treatment strategies in early intermediate stage, and for this, Dr. Kassib, the floor is yours. 
Thank you, Hassan. So, so my job um, is to make a case for systemic therapy in early stage disease. So as a, an oncologic um, uh, standard rule, uh, whenever we have local tumor, we do local therapy. And that's because it's more effective, it's more tolerable, and avoiding the toxicity of systemic. So why are we trying to shake the ground here and make a case for systemic therapy in localized HCC? Two major pathognomonic features, I'm going to pause here for like 20 seconds just to explain that because it's going to help us understand what we're trying to do here and for those of us who are you know, young and the trainees, if you understand these pathognomonic features, you're going to understand every single aspect of HCC from um, screening, diagnosis, all the way to selection of therapy and prognosis. So one is, this is an angiogenesis-driven tumor, so we rely on that even on imaging to diagnose HCC without a biopsy. You see the hypervascularity washout. And then this is um, a, a tumor that is very rich in immune cell infiltration. And that's because the liver is an immune-tolerant organ. We have the portal circulation, pathogens and nutrients coming from the portal uh, circulation, and that's why you do have the uh, immune uh, cells turned off. So that's why these two uh, features, pathognomonic features, are going to really help us understand every single aspect. It's a recurring theme. The first one here is the immunomicroenvironment. And you look here on the left-hand side, you will see very unique uh, number here, which is 30% immune class. So this, this patient population have active immune cell infiltration. And if you have noticed by now, all of these slides, this is the glass ceiling uh, of any dual checkpoint inhibitors of any double agents in HCC. We hit the glass ceiling with single agent, TKI around 10%, immunotherapy, um, single agent 15 to 17%. When you use combination of anything, you go up to 25, 30%. So that's the immune class. On the right-hand side, the immune intermediate and excluded. This is where we have the major issues with patients progressing through therapy resistance to certain uh, therapies as well. And then uh, I mentioned that the, the recurring theme is going to be between angiogenesis and immune um, environment. So this is the case here for anti-angiogenesis therapy with the VEGF angiogenesis-driven tumor. So you will see here the interaction and the synergy, the potential synergistic pathways um, the combining anti-angiogenesis and immunotherapy here. And just to list very few, we're not going to go through all of them, um, the effect on the trafficking of T-cell infiltration, the activation and the priming, cancer antigen presentation, so there is very strong rationale to use both. Those uh, pathognomonic features uh, really led us to believe that patients are going to benefit from these two agents together. And then, you know, this is also a very important concept in HCC, and that explains why patients on the um, linvatinib taste, for example, or SBRT, uh, sorafenib had better survival advantage, and that's because our patients die from liver failure because of the local tumor progression. They don't die from uh, lung lesions or lymph nodes or even bony metastasis. So that's why the pattern of the patient's progression and the survival advantage of combining systemic therapy with localized therapy is, is very justified here to maximize the tumor control and offer them survival advantage. So this is the list of the rationale here. Um, intermediate stage is uh, very heterogeneous. It, uh, uh, you have tumors uh, going from nodularity and size and distribution, underlying liver function. So there's always room, even in localized disease, to jump to systemic therapy, even if you're not doing local. 
the efficacy of the local uh, therapy is also affected by the tumor burden. We learned that from the taste. You know, the initial studies, uh, average size was 5 centimeters, and then people were using it left and right, 10 and 15 centimeters. So they have, in these cases, to do multiple therapies, and liver function goes down. So, and then we look into um, uh, missing opportunities here for systemic therapy if the liver still uh, preserves the function. And we do have level one evidence for systemic therapy. Believe it or not, none of the local light therapies have that, even taste itself. So, so level one evidence with systemic therapy, the increased response rate in systemic therapy combinations led us to believe that there is room, even in early stage disease, to advance systemic therapy approaches. And then, of course, finally, potential advantages of incorporating the systemic therapy in early stage disease because you have this effective therapy, starting it earlier while the liver function are maintained, uh, more effective intervention before the liver decompensation after local light therapies, and then potentially incurring, increasing the cure rate. Why that? Because you could offer those patients curative options after downsizing, for example. So for those who uh, were borderline resectable, transplantable, this approach could make them amenable for curative options. Uh, this is a busy slide, but the take-home message here is, you know, there is a, um, a, a rationale to look into uh, multiple factors to assess uh, and predict response to local light therapies. For example, here for taste, this prognostic score was developed, and it's based on the liver function, the uh, presence or absence of metastasis, um, history of tumor rupture, for example, um, also GI bleeding or ascites, the decompensation of the liver, and then patients get the score, and if it is lit, then six, meaning that they really check all boxes and they're in excellent shape, liver functions are, are maintained, um, then those patients have the highest survival of 49 months, and then, of course, it goes down with patients with very advanced liver disease and, and tumor parameters as well. And this is kind of more of the same here to show us that intermediate stage is a very diverse group. So it's called intermediate because there is no metastasis or vascular invasion, but that's a very wide spectrum. It goes from single tumor to innumerable tumors, from single lobe to bilobar disease. So, of course, needless to say, uh, the smaller tumors localized to one lobe are going to do much better than advanced tumors in, in both lobes of the liver. And um, this approach has been, you know, pushed further to change the status quo here and, and look into um, um, the fixed beliefs in our mind that patients with localized disease would only need localized disease has been challenged recently. So, for example, here, linvatinib versus taste study looked into just that and showed superiority of linvatinib over taste. Along the same line, ongoing phase three studies are challenging this concept, and you're going to see more effective systemic therapy randomized to localized therapies. Ongoing these are the um, historic studies with the TKIs here, and of course with the TKI, the effect of the TKIs themselves were, was, was very modest, so that's one of the reasons. Also the fact that most of these studies, they use different kind of strategies. So a lot of them actually did what we call adjuvant systemic, meaning you do the taste and then you randomize patients to adjuvant sorafenib versus placebo, for example, rather than starting both of them together or randomizing to the local therapy rather than systemic. So all of these things um, uh, led to a lot of failures in systemic therapy trials until we started to see more effective systemic, until we started to see um, more smart way of randomizing those patients rather than the old kind of adjuvant strategy. 
course, the next wave with the you know, emergence of immunotherapy and the efficacy of immunotherapy in HCC is going to um, uh, really be um, going that direction, combining local and systemic, and systemic here meaning immune therapy, immunotherapy uh, regimen, based regimen, either alone or combined. And of course, you know, the uh, episcopal effect here, meaning that the localized therapy will induce this systemic response that will mobilize the immune cells from lymph nodes to the microenvironment. So you're expected, if, even if you do taste in the liver, to see this systemic response, and you could see even responses in the metastatic lesions based on this uh, rationale. And this is a, an example here of a study that just did just that with ablation, local ablation, and showed the effect on the microenvironment and circulating levels of, um, uh, of immune cells. And this is just a list of, short list of what's going on nowadays. So you do have, um, in terms of local therapy approaches, TACE um, versus uh, Y90, um, DIPTACE, and you have different regimens, systemic therapy, either immunotherapy alone or in combinations. And this is another study that also is um, um, a global study testing combination with DERVA and map in patients with local regional therapy, uh, and that's compared to TAS-DERVA alone or TAS alone. And this is another study that also looking into different regimen, derva trimilinvatinib plus TAS versus derva trimitase versus TAS. And that's a TESO-BEV um, with TACE, and this strategy here is to assess whether you can do a TESO-BEV before TACE uh, or you can do it in combination. So you'll see all of these studies trying to answer very, very specific question here, which is, is immunotherapy alone sufficient in this population? Is immunotherapy in combination with the local therapy better than local therapy alone? So we just talked about the local therapy approaches and how we are looking at it nowadays with the um, development of the more effective systemic therapies. How about pushing the envelope even more and more um, in terms of patients who undergo surgical resection? So this is a very unique patient population. They come, they have resectable disease, good liver functions, and then they, have, um, uh, they go for surgery. However, the recurrence rate is very high, and that's the dilemma here. And there is no approved new adjuvant or adjuvant therapies. So the next few minutes will be focusing on this population here. So this is um, this population. This is how we look at it in clinic, right? So you do have uh, to have very specific guidelines to enable resection in HCC, and that's because most of the patients have underlying liver disease. So they have to have enough liver remnant. So for example, here for the future liver remnant has to be more than 40% in cirrhotics. So this is very important. Also, as another major, major uh, uh, rule here, uh, we never resect by lower disease. So unlike colorectal metastasis, for example, with the segmentectomy, so it has to be one lobe, you have to have enough liver remnant. And then, of course, you know, the effect of the underlying disease leading to portal hypertension is another dimension here. So you, you, you see how complicated it is. We look at all of these features, we get EGD done, we look at the um, imaging characteristics, if there is any advanced cirrhosis, large spleen, uh, platelet count, all of these things factor in in terms of selection of potential surgical candidates. However, five-year overall survival here is uh, in terms of um, um, patients with resectable diseases only 70%, and that's because the majority of patients get recurrent disease, over 70% in five years. 
And this is, you know, illustrating just that here, depending on the number and the size of the nodule, there is a very specific correlation. And if you go to pathology literature, this is very consistent. Single tumor, less than five centimeters, they do best, no matter what we do to them. Taste, surgery, radiation, even systemic therapy. And if you, you go for with this, uh, along this line with the surgical patients, they have the lowest recurrence rate. And that's because the tumors are um, uh, more well differentiated. They don't have a lot of microvascular invasion, for example. So larger the size, the more the number of tumor nodules, the worse the outcome and the prognosis of HCC. And that's why, you know, moving up, you know, we talked about systemic therapy with local therapy in terms of intermediate stage. This is early stage disease here. How about moving up systemic therapy to the patients who are amenable for surgical resection? Very strong rationale, of course. For example, here, looking into the anti-angiogenesis. Of course, you know, in terms of angiogenic switch, you know, in terms of uh, the growth factor that can lead to recurrence and poor prognosis after surgery. IMBREV050 tested this concept based on the recent approval of Atezubev and the validation of this concept in HCC in general and the validation of targeting both pathways, anti-angiogenesis and um, uh, the uh, immune microenvironment. So the study looked into patients who um, uh, will undergo resection or ablation and then stratified based on the common features we talked about in terms of the tumor size and number, the necessitated for those patients to be enrolled if they have high risk features and the risk features are listed here and just like what we discussed earlier, based on the number and size of the tumors and then was randomized to a tezubev in one arm versus just active surveillance in another arm. And then you will see here one word about uh, allowing one cycle of taste. That's because in uh, Asia, they do this, taste to the surgical bed after resection. And the um, patient characteristics here were equal, and uh, the take-home messages here is that the, most of the patients from uh, Asia, 82%. Um, most of the patients had hepatitis B, 62%. And, um, um, and patients um, had mainly ECOG status of zero, some um, one. And then in terms of the tumor characteristics here, 90% um, of patients had single tumor. So when this study was launched, the hope was we're going to get a good number of patients with real high-risk features. However, because there is a mix of features here in terms of vascular invasion, for example, so you could have one single tumor, but they have poor, poorly differentiated uh, pathology, or one single tumor, but they have um, uh, vascular invasion um, uh, under the microscope, microscopic vascular invasion. So this study ended up with mainly uni, um, uh, one tumor, um, uninodular disease, uh, as we see here, and then the rest of them were equal on both arms. And then you see the results here. The study reached its primary endpoint, which was the, you know, the um, um, significant decrease in recurrence-free survival here. Um, the um, hazard ratio is 0.72, so there was 28% reduction in risk of recurrence here. However, as you um, will notice here, that the effect was uh, major in the first year, and you start you know, seeing the effect weaning off um, later on. This is a busy slide, but again, the take-home message here is that based on the fact that some patients had um, lower, higher risk than expected, you see that you know, some patients even on the randomized arm to just surveillance did better than expected. And we see here that the effect was 
um, uh, was uh, less prominent in the second year here. So is it just because we are delaying the recurrence rather than preventing it? Or there is, you know, the uh, ERASL here. This is a score looking into patients who undergo resection and the stratify them into different risk groups. And the risk group here matched with the intermediate because patients didn't really have high, high risk features. And in terms of um, the subgroup analysis here, as expected in those large randomized you know, studies, most of the time you see the effect of the overall study panning out in subgroups as well. And along the same line, we have other studies ongoing with adjuvant derva here in high-risk um, group, <coughs> derva plus BEV um, versus placebo. Ongoing adjuvant trials here, the same concept looking into immunotherapy versus placebo. And uh, this is a patient here uh, who was found to have extensive microvascular invasion at resection, 50-year-old with hep C, sustained viral response, and had large unifocal disease, 7.5 centimeter, uh, no imaging invasion, vascular invasion and imaging or disametastasis, um, excellent liver condition, underwent resection. What would you do for, for, for this patient? Yeah, thanks so much for the Kasab. And let's ask with Dr. Goyal, so what do you think about this situation? Yeah, well, given this patient had a resection of a large tumor with high-risk features, so greater than five centimeters, and had microvascular invasion, um, and had poor differentiation, so multiple high-risk features, certainly this patient is at high risk for recurrence. I think it's certainly worth a conversation to talk about yep. consideration of adjuvant atezolizumab plus bevacizumab. Yeah. You know, right now we saw the early data with the interim yep. analysis, and I think we need to see longer-term follow-up. But given the positive trial from what we see so far, certainly worth having that conversation with the patient. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that, uh, for that Dr. Gyal. And Dr. Uh, uh, Singal, uh, understandably, the two drugs are available. Are you ready to apply it, or would you wait for the final publication? And please tell us, what's your thinking process when you have novel therapy like the Ambrave 050? Yeah, so I think, you know, we, wait, we were, um, at our center, we were waiting for the actual presentation, so we mm -hmm. obviously didn't do it on the press release. We wanted to see the actual data. But now that we've seen the data presented, we feel like we have enough of under, an understanding um, of the data where we are now talking to our patients about adjuvant therapy at this time. Thank you for that. Okay, so uh, uh, this is uh, uh, understandably now another situation, and we have 60-year-old uh, gentleman with uh, NASH and multifocal HCC, four lesions, Largest 5.2 centimeter with no vascular invasion, no metastases, three lesions in the right lobe, one lesion in the left, in the left lobe, and chart view score A and appropriate numbers, but platelet count 97,000. And the question is transplant, yes or no? And go back to you, Dr. Kassib. So, if you follow transplant, you know, even the extended criteria with four lesions with this patient is, would not be amenable for transplant. Downstage, yes, this is one option, especially for 62-year-old patient. So, at our center, we would go aggressively here in terms of treatment options. For a patient like this, with this borderline liver function, I would start with systemic therapy based on the data showing that there is an advantage there in terms of even early-stage disease patients. So, I would start systemic here hoping that we can downstage, I would definitely use immunotherapy combination. Sure, thank you for that. And Dr. Goyal, please give us your perspective. What's downstaging? Yeah, so there are different opportunities to downstage patients. We know in this country that it takes 12 to 24 months to get a transplant, depending on your blood type and a variety of other factors. And so because there's a waiting list for a liver transplant, we have to keep patients within criteria in order to be able to get them transplanted. 
There's some patients that are within Milan criteria in order to, and they can get transplanted um, earlier, but some patients are beyond Milan criteria, but still within UCSF criteria. And we can do a variety of maneuvers to try to decrease their tumor burden to get them to within Milan criteria. That's called downstaging. So we can use um, systemic therapies. One option is Dr. Kasab mentioned, we also have liver-directed therapies such as Y90, TACE, uh, radiation um, as options to decrease the amount of tumor burden to get people within Milan criteria. Uh, thanks for that, Dr. And you gave different perspective on that. Biologically, Dr. Singal, does it just, are we justified to downstage? Yes. So, um, you know, we know there's actually a large randomized control trial for patients who are beyond Milan who um, were treated with local regional therapy, um, had a response, and they were randomized at that point to continue their current course of therapy or to undergo transplant and significant benefit of liver transplantation. So we know that this is actually beneficial to those patients and should be considered standard of care. It's built into the UNOS policy, so these patients get exception, just like presenting within Milan. So this is standard, I, I would argue, standard of care. To Ahmed's point, this patient presents with it, uh, beyond UNOS downstaging. So they have four lesions, largest five centimeters. So they're beyond UNOS downstaging, although it doesn't mean we can't downstage this patient. And so if this patient was seen at our center, we would still talk about downstaging, um, and we would talk about doing so via a living donor pathway. Um, and so this, um, you know, at least the data suggests that the survival after liver transplant in those patients beyond UNOS downstaging is not the same. It's slightly lower than those patients within Milan or within UNOS downstaging, but still very excellent. You still achieve five-year survival of 50-60%, and that isn't achieved with local regional or systemic therapy. And so in a young patient like this, and I guess as I get, I'm not anywhere close to 62, but as I get closer every year, I start to change what my definition of young. Um, in this young patient, um, I think it's something that we need to consider. And I think it's the type of thing where tumor biology, because of waiting times, will declare itself. If this patient progresses, systemic therapy is fine. But this patient may have actually had four lesions. You treat them, no new lesions pop up. This patient would benefit from transplant. Thank you for that. This is a very important point. That's why we asked the question to justify that biologically, which is great. And we carry on. And uh, if anything, we'll uh, back to you, Dr. Kassib. Yes, so now we're going to even, you know, uh, look into some more intriguing, you know, ideas here. How about patients who are going for surgery, delaying their surgery to allow us to do immunotherapy? Would that be justified? Would that be even helpful? So uh, there is a very strong rationale here, of course, right? We talked about validation of immunotherapy in HCC, in metastatic disease. We talked about the adjuvant strategy here. How about, you know, a new adjuvant? therapy with immunotherapy before surgery, and would the adjuvant strategy here, approval of atezubev, affect you know, future trials in this space? Um, and then we talked a little bit about benefit-risk assessment here after resection uh, for the adjuvant, but we know for reality is once this is approved by FDA, everybody's going to use it. So what's going to happen to the new adjuvant space here and the future of these trials? Thank you for that. So this is a study we did at our institution here looking into uh, NEVO versus NEVO EPI in patients with resectable disease. This was the first patient on this study here. You will notice that this patient had a hyper, hypervascular tumor turned into very dark tumor, so that's by imaging complete response. And then this was validated based on the pathology. So this was the first case ever in HCC to show this uh, complete pathologic response after new adjuvant therapy. And this was only six weeks of therapy. The study was completed. Six out of 20 patients achieved this kind of response. 
Five of them, 100% necrosis, and one of them had more than 50%, so major pathologic response. None of the six patients recurred, and the other 14 patients, half of them recurred. So you do have this uh, over three years follow-up uh, after this study was completed. Another study looked into similar approach with new adjuvant Cabo plus Nevo, and that was done at Hopkins here. Showed you know similar uh, pilot you know prelim results here in terms of uh, a major pathologic response. Four of patients out of the 15 achieved more than 90%. And this is a study ongoing at our institution with new adjuvant atezubev based on the recent data. So this is three cycles followed by washout and then surgery. And then I'm going to turn it to um, Dr. Singel uh, to talk to us here, the last few slides about uh, transplantation for HCC. Yeah, um, I know we're at time, so I'm going to try to hold myself back. I like to talk, so I'm going to try to hold myself back. And I don't know if you're sort of st sitting here as your dedication or the fact that we're such good <laughs> presenters, so, um, but maybe a combination. So, okay, let's go through this quickly. We've already heard transplant is, is a great therapy, right? It's a curative therapy for both the HEC as well as the underlying liver disease. So one can argue it's really the, the treatment of choice for anyone with underlying liver dysfunction. Of course, there's limits in terms of what we can do this, and we've already talked about downstaging. So even beyond Milan, you can achieve very good outcomes for those patients with larger tumor burden that have a response to therapy, come to within Milan, and these patients can achieve very good survival. Now, why are we talking about this? This is a talk on systemic therapies. And I think the, 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 sort of, the interesting idea here is that we used to think of bridging and downstaging exclusively with um, a localized therapy, taste, tear, et cetera. Um, and there used to be fear of using immunotherapy in this setting, right? I mean, you're essentially taking something that is increasing your immune system, and then you're transplanting them and putting them on medications that inherently suppress their immune system. And when those patients have immune activation, they're at high risk of rejection. And so there used to be fear of this because of some case reports of using IO agents after transplant, resulting in almost near universal bad outcomes, rejection, death, et cetera. However, Recent data suggests the safety of immunotherapy prior to liver transplantation. Very exciting data that comes out of Mount Sinai. Relatively small data set, but these patients received Nevo while on the transplant list, including one patient who received nivolumab the day prior to liver transplantation. I am fascinated by that one patient. Um, but received nivolumab prior to liver transplantation, and these patients actually did well post-liver transplant. So not having rejection, having very good outcomes, and so this at least makes us reassured that this may be a viable strategy. Now, there are studies that are actually going to prospectively evaluate this. So this is one study um, looking at this, looking at Dervatremi and um, those patients who are listed for liver transplantation. Um, and it's really the primary endpoint here is taking a look at the proportion of patients who have rejection after. So this is how much of a change in the field there's been in terms of not only using this sort of, you know, in aggressive centers, but now actually um, sort of uh, um, industry coming into this space and doing um, trials. This is, um, uh, there are other trials also looking at ne um, uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy um, uh, prior to liver transplantation. Once again, you can see them listed here, and I think that we will have more data showing hopefully safety in those patients prior to transplant. I think the one thing that I would say is that there are data prior to transplant. I think we should not be using this after transplant. I think that's still one area where there's high risk of rejection and high risk of adverse events. Kassan, I'm going to turn it back to you. Yeah, thanks so much for that, uh, Dr. Singal. And please, the last point that uh, Amit wrote in is very critical. 
Pre-transplant, yes, we have data, we have studies coming on, but post-transplant, please, this is not to be used for that purpose. And if anything here, we'll leave you with some key home messages, and we're going to take a few minutes. I know we're a little bit behind time, but it's critical. I really feel obligated to answer you some of the questions. But uh, uh, number one is uh, continued advances in regard to the combination therapies, as we heard first uh, from Dr. Goyal, in regard to the NTPD1, NTPDL1 scaffolding of the therapy. Uh, definitely we look forward to better global access to advanced therapy for ACC. And by the way, thank you very much for all those who asked questions regarding regard to this accessibility in either clinical trials or therapy um, uh, that are already approved. Uh, there is a thorough analysis in the context of the uh, study-specific demographics that really is needed, and especially some component we didn't talk about in regard to etiology and uh, other uh, uh, factors that could impact the immune microenvironment. Uh, sequential therapy is an evolving field, and remember, we really put it in based on what the data has shown. And some of the questions were brought in in regard to, is there any justification for doing combination therapy versus sequential therapy? And this is something definitely that needs to be looked into further as well. The combined therapy evaluation is still underway, and we heard quite a bit of that in regard to the second-line effort from Dr. Singal. And of course, the integration of the systemic therapy into the early-stage disease continue to evolve, and there's ongoing trial, as we heard also from Dr. Kassib. With this said, I will only take the uh, three key questions, and it has been really flooding over here with questions, but the only question that we brought in, and I'm going to do it rapid-fire style, so in other words, yes, no, and I will ask Dr. Singal the first question, biopsy, yes, no. <laughs> it's a more complicated answer than yes, no. Um, if you're gonna you can give me the yes or the no, and then we'll, we'll evolve on the, on the but. <laughs> more yes than yeah, it was before. Perfect. Okay. More yes than no. And this is understandable for three couple components. Number one, the biology diagnosis is critical. There is a potential for a, a combined or even potentially other diagnoses or required to do that. Number two, we need to evolve on all what we heard from all of us regarding the biology. If we don't have the tissue, will never be able to understand what we're doing. And as you see, most of the studies are actually have the tissue as a requirement. And the second rapid-fire question that is for Dr. Uh, Goyal. So uh, immunotherapy as second line. You brought it up again one more time, but it's coming back as well. Are you ready to give checkpoint immunotherapy after you used it as first line, yes or no? Yes. And uh, if anything, uh, the scaffolding that we're talking about, I totally concur with uh, Dr. Goyal that maybe the studies are not there yet, but understandably kind of like bringing in more potential for the, the, the immune cycle of the, of the cancer cells will probably be valuable. And this is what we encourage actually to see those studies ongoing per se. And the last question again, a yes or no for uh, Dr. Kassib, which was really brought up one more time. The adjuvant therapy, uh, tomorrow morning, you know, we're Friday, Monday morning, you're going to give the uh, atizubav yes or no as adjuvant? I would wait for the FDA approval. I, I usually don't do it unless we really have yeah. the, because the regulatory yeah. body of the FDA yeah. is designed that way yeah. to look at the data. And yeah. So I would definitely yeah. wait. Sure. So this was a, by the way, a long no. So if <laughs> I, uh, and, and if anything, understand it. We do respect that. I think Dr. Singal also brought it up. We're always thoughtful and careful in regard to when do we apply therapy. We're definitely happy to see that it's an exciting thing, but we just have to wait for the details of it. So with this, uh, we thank you very much for um, staying with us uh, that long, and uh, I hope this was helpful. This activity is certified by PVI.
Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Blue Ferry, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UUY860. This educational activity is supported by independent medical education grants from AstraZeneca, ISI Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Merkin Company Incorporated, and Novocure Incorporated.